This is Anne Markham Bailey, the host and producer of Present Tense Podcast. We're moving into episode four of our series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. And now we hear from Dr. Charles Borden, a ceaseless and tenacious advocate for the wild. Charles wrote, It is important that we as humans understand how small we are compared to the universe, for that gives us the humility we need to truly respect nature. It is our great responsibility to pass on that respect to the next generation. If we don't do that, then we have failed society and humanity. It took millions of years for all of this to come together. Once it is destroyed, it is lost forever. I'm Dr. Charles Borden. Uh, I'm a lifelong resident of the Bankhead National Forest. Uh, we're eighth generation of Bordens to live in the Bankhead National Forest. The first one moved in was Christopher Borden. I think he was a surveyor in the early 1800s. Uh, Borden Creek in the Bankhead National Forest is named after him. Uh, many of our Family and relatives uh, associated with him, his descendants, all lived uh, in the vicinity from uh, off Mountain Springs Road, and that's where the old uh, original home place is. Uh, we grew up near Brushy Lake in the Bankhead National Forest. Uh, spent all my younger younger years and still uh, enjoy rambling all through the Bankhead. One of the wonderful things uh, is the uh, I went to uh, Birmingham Southern College uh, and to dental school at the University of Alabama and uh, majored in biology at Birmingham Southern with a minor in botany. We did some of our botanical collections from the Bankhead. It has some very interesting collections that my professor was impressed with because uh, they were uh, unusual uh, herbs and flowers that uh, were not found generally throughout the state of Alabama. Uh, and that's typical for the Bankhead. They're a, so the, the southernmost extent of the Appalachians. And so there are uh, lots of uh, plant communities that are unique to the Bankhead National Forest. And so through uh, going to school and learning of those things and the uniqueness of the area, uh, I already uh, love the area because uh, just the natural beauty and uh, the family connectivity to the land has always been of uh, not only just interest to me, but uh, it's been of great importance. I don't know the specific story of what motivated particularly Christopher Borden, the first Borden in the area, to come specifically to this area, but uh, this was a, a rather common path to take uh, along the Hightown Path that has become uh, identified through the Bankhead National Forest on t- movement uh, to the west as uh, European settlers poured into the country. And so uh, I think that uh, probably uh, he, like a lot of others, were looking for not only just adventure, but they were looking for places to settle and uh, prosper. He, being a surveyor, was uh, probably not uh, far behind the forefront of some of the people coming through the area uh, as his services were needed to survey. Don't know what particularly possessed him to uh, settle with his family in the Bankhead National Forest in this particular area. The natural beauty of the land was one of the things that appealed to him. There are lots of beautiful places uh, and uh, it's really particularly uh, fortunate that we have uh, this little postage stamp sized piece of land uh, protected and having been purchased by the government for the public in perpetuity. And so uh, it's uh, unfortunate that the area is not larger and we do not have more of those areas protected. 
It's unfortunate that we uh, don't have, at present time, uh, government funds to purchase uh, other properties contiguous uh, and adjacent to the Bankhead National Forest because there are lots of private inholdings that come up for sale periodically that really need urgently to be purchased uh, by the federal government mm -hmm. and protect those areas also to help to protect the larger ecosystem of the Bankhead National Forest. The entire beauty of the area is what is, uh, has impressed me from my early childhood, just getting out and, and following the bluff lines and seeing all the beautiful waterfalls and the beautiful trees and just uh, the wildlife uh, and being able to just experience the outdoors and uh, sort of immerse yourself in the beauty of the outdoors. We were uh, uh, poor, grew up in the right in the middle of the bankhead. Uh, so from my earliest experiences, uh, I was in the woods uh, walking uh, and hiking with my dad and uh, hunting. Uh, one of my earliest uh, sort of interesting uh, this day and time, a lot of people uh, are, with some good reason, uh, concerned about guns. And uh, one of my first uh, memories is uh, my dad bought <clears throat> me a uh, 22 single shot rifle when I was uh, six years old. And so I was in the woods hunting with him. And uh, uh, one day we were hunting and saw a squirrel uh, run in a hole into his den. And uh, dad left me in the woods with my rifle. And he said, just sit here and the, you know, after a while the squirrel will come out. So I did and uh, about 30 minutes later the squirrel emerged and uh, I shot and killed the squirrel and took it onto the house and, and uh, we cleaned it and ate it. That's uh, sort of interesting with problems that we have now in society with people irresponsibly uh, using guns for all kinds of harmful and disruptive and unbelievable atrocities. We were taught from an early age how to be safe and the importance of safety and to never point a gun at anything that you did not intend to kill. But uh, it, one of the first memories uh, with hunting was that, and that was important to me, uh, providing and uh, enjoying, not just enjoying the beauty of the land, but being able to understand that uh, we love to eat wild animals, and, uh, and, but yet even though that you hunted things, that you had this great appreciation for them. So that was a very special thing. Still enjoy hunting, uh, but uh, any time, uh, any time that you take, uh, any time that you're doing that and you harvest something, You still really appreciate the value in life that you have taken. <laughs> so all life forms are so precious. <laughs> So uh, I uh, value highly every moment of life uh, for myself and all living things. And it is uh, a very emotional thing that um, very recognition of the precious
fitness of life itself and all of its uh, aspects, all of its beauty, <laughs> and all of its value. And in all of its complexity for all of the world and all of humanity. It's a it's a very in it's it's a very, very special thing to know and realize that in the present time our lives and the lives of other living organisms on Earth Earth is just one speck in the universe, at least that we know of, where life exists. <laughs> that, that realization is a very humbling, very, very humbling experience, recognition. And it should teach us the absolute importance of protection of the environment and the protection and value of all life forms on Earth. I think humanity in itself, incorporated in, within all of us, demands that recognition and not only that recognition but it demands action on behalf of all of us to do everything you know, within our power individually and collectively to, to make sure that the opportunity for life to continue to exist in all of its diversity is protected, uh, honored, recognized for its beauty, enjoyment, pleasure, all that makes a life worth living. There are a lot of people who have a disconnect from the reality of nature. And I think one of the things uh, that was a great fortune for me growing up in the Bacon National Forest in a natural environment and being exposed to that on a daily basis and uh, having the opportunity to get out and explore and enjoy those things and going on to school and studying the complexity and coming to uh, just intellectually understand in a, to a greater depth that complexity and how it functions. I think all of that gave me perhaps an insight uh, better than people who would have grown up in the middle of a city because uh, one of the you know, it's, it's uh, the nature of the uh, population explosion of humanity around the world and just the economics and viability of society that people now live in much more uh, compact areas. But the downside of that is the loss of connectivity with the land. Uh, there are all kinds of beautiful things in the world. There are beautiful museums and beautiful works of art and, and uh, beautiful statues and the beauty they produce and all those things, which are fine, and they, we do appreciate those things. But none of those things compare in any manner to the complexity and beauty of nature. The, the time span of life here where the earth is four and a half billion years old or so and the life uh, humanity, uh, the earliest uh, uh, pre-hominids are probably uh, dating right now, traceable to some nine billion years ago. That is such a short time scale and with 
uh, Homo sapiens being around for a couple hundred thousand years or so, uh, we are such recent arrivals on this planet. And the diversity of life that has preceded us with better than, you know, probably 98% of all living species that have lived on Earth are all extinct now. And so uh, when you're looking at all the mass extinctions that have occurred in the past, the process of uh, evolution that has led to the present uh, forms of life on Earth, we still have you know, all the millions of different uh, and billions of different forms that still live here in all kinds of extreme uh, circumstances and different niches that that they now occupy from the thermophiles to all the things that live in solid granite miles under the surface of the earth. We're doing the human microbiome project right now. We are being described as superorganisms. Uh, we most people do not understand the complexity of themselves, their own individual life, and how complex that is, because all of those microorganisms living inside you and on the surface, uh, not only are they just living there, they are affecting your thought processes, not just your function they're actually affecting your thought processes. And so without those organisms, you could not function. We could not be a living organism ourselves without our association and dependence upon all of those other living organisms that are not only spread across the surface of the planet that we talk about protecting all the things in the environment, we're in essence talking about protecting our own lives because we are interdependent. Some of, those, uh, some of those levels of dependency are more obvious than others, and you have to study in detail some, and we don't understand at all the complexity uh, yet of all the organisms that live just within us. We haven't made names, given names to them. We haven't identified what their function is. We don't know how they interact, but they do. The, the relative uh, populations fluctuate according to what we eat. Uh, what we eat and affects, to some degree, how we think, uh, what our desires and ambitions are. And then you start looking at the complexity of trying to, we as human beings, trying to, to and somehow uh, mitigate or minimize uh, our impact on the environment as our populations uh, continue to expand around the globe and have an adverse impact on all other living forms uh, of life on Earth. So we have a we have such a huge challenge, and the the uh, capacity within us <clears throat> to try not only to, uh, in essence, to determine our destiny and the destiny of our planet. That is the big question as to whether or not we really are capable of doing that. And so uh, we, we like to think, uh, of, of, as the philosophers <clears throat> Hobbes and Locke, we like to think that there is an inherent uh, goodness uh, in us uh, many of us do, <clears throat> but the reality is that there is a duality within us as humanity. We have a great capacity for, for goodness, and we have a great capacity for destruction. And so uh, that's exhibited on a daily basis uh, around the world in interactions between nations and between individuals. And so we have to recognize that uh, those uh, different instincts are there uh, and we have to do everything we can to try to uh, leverage uh, our societal uh, actions uh, through education and whatever other means that we can to enhance the good aspect, the preservation aspect, and to minimize the other.
I guess I have really realized that uh, from early childhood. You see an increase in the utilization of the forest, that is, you see an increase in timber harvesting, uh, you see an increase in road building. Much of it was part of timber harvesting. The uh, initially, uh, I'm 71 and was born in uh, uh, 47, uh, and initially we would see, see um, uh, there was not massive, I mean, there were the mechanization, the ability to harvest more and more timber uh, expanded over the years. Of course, uh, for a number of years, chainsaws were not available. Most people, a lot of people were still using cross-cut saws in harvesting, and they were using mules to uh, pull the, or they called it snaking the logs out of the woods. And so that would be uh, harvesting on a more limited basis, and they were doing uh, just select harvest. They were selecting specific trees to cut and they were not clear-cutting large swaths of land. And uh, they were building uh, roads to get in with their log trucks, but once those roads were used, they were usually abandoned, and so uh, they were uh, reclaimed by natural processes. As the years went by, uh, the intensity of harvest increased. There was a change to clear-cutting activities. Uh, and that just astounded me as to why uh, the Forest Service would actually engage on the limited public lands in uh, activities that were so disruptive of uh, the environment on the National Forest because we have a relatively small place. Uh, and so, uh, one, you know, part of uh, what happened was that we had a champion uh, paper company moved in the area, and I, I understood that what was happening was from a political perspective, that uh, in order to entice a paper company to the area, the politicians, uh, senators and congressmen, and the, were putting influence, uh, having influence with the U.S. Forest Service to feed the beast. That was the contract they had made uh, not publicly expressed, it was done behind the scenes uh, to uh, uh, try to ensure and entice that uh, multinational corporation to the area to uh, ensure that they had a continuing supply of timber. And so the consequence and uh, harmful effects given uh, short shrift so far as uh, overall integrity of the Bankhead National Forest, that was the least of the concerns. Their biggest concern was trying to find an excuse and some sort of uh, explanation that they could put out to the public that the public would buy in order to allow them to engage in the activity that they had already determined they were going to do. From the history of the establishment of the Forest Service and uh, some of the early people, uh, you know, there were, you know, there were problems with corporate and uh, business exploitation of the land all across America from the early beginning, and so the establishment of the Forest Service <clears throat> was in reaction to all of that because of uh, public outrage and realization <clears throat> by a few individuals of the uh, detrimental and harmful effects. Uh, to the nation as a whole and to uh, wildlife and the environment. So there were people uh, in the early stages of formation of the Forest Service and some of the other conservation organizations from the Sierra Club to others uh, of the importance and recognition of this, the preciousness of the natural beauty of the land and, and that ethic of preservation. But the uh, laws uh, as they were written as to how the Forest Service was to manage lands uh, was heavily influenced by corporate uh, America from the beginning. Eventually allowed the clear-cutting to start to occur because the law actually did allow legally them to take this particular action. Uh, and so the, 
the particular initiation of of uh, additional cutting and activity was a consequence of uh, two things. One, the initial setting up of the Forest Service and how is it, how, what the mandate was for regulation of the land with the multiple use concept. And then uh, the finality of the uh, specific situation with a timber company moving in and needing to be assured politically, in essence, that there would be an unlimited supply a product, then the the political situation, I think, sort of uh, forced the people within the Forest Service to go ahead and uh, uh, take the action of uh, trying to produce a product uh, from the land that was being uh, uh, driven by uh, the corporate uh, needs. You see these things and, uh, of course, uh, seeing them at an earlier, earlier age and seeing these things start to happen, uh, like most people, uh, you feel uh, pretty helpless because this is a government action. Uh, this is the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, you have uh, multinational corporations uh, that are behind the scenes uh, making political contributions and uh, having uh, access and inroads to people of influence, the senators and congressmen, uh, who are setting national policy and uh, they, they have their own personal agenda. Much of it is driven by uh, campaign donations and uh, many of them also have uh, very little tie to the land itself and very little uh, realization of the significance of the actions that are being taken. They're uh, not very knowledgeable about those things themselves and uh, they're sometimes easily influenced by, uh, by people with uh, better lobbyists who are meeting with them on a constant basis. And so uh, they have a, just a human susceptibility to being influenced in a direction that is uh, contrary to the public interest. It's a different, totally different in perspective. We all, we all need a job. Right. Uh, we all have to make a living. Uh, we all uh, fare better when the economy is better. We all want a, 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 we all want a better life, not only for ourselves, but to make sure that we have a better life for our children and grandchildren. Uh, but you have to be able to have a pretty broad understanding of a lot of things in order to make good decisions. And a lot of the people that we have elected have not made the best decisions clearly on behalf of the public in general. They have made uh, their decisions based upon uh, those, that top 1% who uh, has enjoys the greatest portion of the wealth in the country. Those people have fared well, but the rest of the country has not fared so well and the environment has not fared well. And we have uh, just, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's a commentary on society that there's the people to blame or we. We are the people to blame because we as a society have elected these representatives who have made these decisions that have uh, most have very often not been in our collective best interest. That's the, that's the nature of democracy. We started to get involved with uh, a lot of different organizations. Uh, I joined the uh, Alabama Conservancy at the time. Uh, I joined a different uh, nature conservancy, uh, different uh, environmentally oriented organizations. Blue Clan, the uh, Native American uh, community, uh, uh, early on, uh, we were uh, working uh, before they formed, before the Blue Clan formed and got started. We were working for years, though, on environmental affairs prior to that. And so we started organizing, uh, trying to delve deeper politically to see what positions different congressmen and senators were taking, to go to meetings, to question them as to uh, why they were not uh, taking uh, courses of action that we uh, proposed. Uh, in fact, uh, I ran for the U.S. Senate, uh, I guess it was in 86, against Hal Heflin because 
uh, we were working on the Sipsi Wilderness expansion at the time, and I went to Washington to testify before Congress. During the course of the process and the meetings, a series of meetings we had, we sat down in Hal Heflin's office and talked with him, and I explained to him the, you know, the precious uh, nature of the bankhead and the area that we were asking that be uh, protected as a part of the expanded wilderness area. And his comment to me, we'd been, we'd been dealing with this issue for years, had talked to his assistants, had written hundreds and hundreds of letters, had given tons of information to him. And we sit down in the meeting and we're talking and he says, uh, well, Charles, he said, uh, uh, you know, why do we need to protect uh, this area now? Uh, why do we need to protect more wilderness area? He said, sometime in the future, if we need more wilderness area, we'll just pass a law and make more wilderness area. And that's our U.S. Senator, Hal Heflin, and his level of understanding of environmental issues and, and his concept as a legislator was that if we need some, we'll just make it. We'll just pass a law and make it. And I told him, I said, Senator, that's not the way it works. I said, wilderness area is something that has developed over millions and millions of years. And I said, the complexity of the life and the, all the processes that are going on, I said, these are things that are millions of years in the making. And it's, it's great that you can take action and protect this particular small area and add it to the small area that we already have. But I said, the activities that the Forest Service has been undertaking, clear cutting and road building and all these things, degrade from the uh, relatively primitive state that this area is in right now. And it will take hundreds and thousands of years once areas are clear cut before it can get back to where it is right now. And I said, you can't just create wilderness areas. I said, you can protect them, but you can't create them by legislation. And so that really disturbed me that uh, this individual who was in a, such a position of responsibility, who was responsible for, uh, uh, for uh, listening to my arguments and other people's as to why we should protect an area and and the importance of a wilderness area and the significance of a wilderness area, how this individual would have such poor understanding. And that really shook me, I think, because I, prior to that, I had always had a great respect for these people who were in positions of responsibility and decision-making. I had, uh, uh, I had thought much more highly of these people uh, then obviously then I should have uh, because the facts uh, of the matter in that situation uh, bore out that uh, these people are you cannot depend upon the good judgment from these individuals and that they would automatically uh, take a responsible and rational position you can't depend on that and so we uh, uh, I ran for the U.S. Senate uh, against him in the next election cycle. Uh, he raised uh, $5 million for the, during the uh, uh, primary process, and I raised just a few thousand. Uh, we had five people in, that year uh, in the primary. Uh, I came in second, though, statewide. Uh, but... Uh, uh, and I was proud of that. I thought that was a great showing. But I thoroughly enjoyed it because uh, I made a point of going to as many uh, events as I possibly could around the state. And uh, so I was afforded the opportunity to uh, be on stage in front of uh, hundreds of people at different events, uh, usually following him.
uh, in speaking to the groups and expressing a different point of view. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that as an opportunity to try to uh, uh, educate uh, some of the public as to some of the differences of opinion and different perspective than what the senator was offering. But uh, he had he was an incumbent uh, and uh, had lots of money to spend on advertising. And uh, you realize very quickly when you start to run a statewide campaign the power of that money and incumbency and influence. And so you realize very quickly uh, what the political process is about and its limitations. And you would like to think in society that we should make our decisions based upon the best arguments, the best thought processes, uh, the most rational discussion as to what we should or should not do, what course of action we should take and what we should not. But what you find is that, is that uh, the power of uh, influence peddling and the power of money in campaigns can distort that process because if the person with the most money is going to be able to get the message out uh, more often. And uh, so the playing field is not level for the discussion of, for a rational discussion. Through the Nature Conservancy, or the Alabama Conservancy uh, at the time, uh, John Randolph and uh, Mary Birch and uh, uh, her husband, uh, we were working collectively, uh, they as a state organization, and we collectively, uh, locally, we networked with uh, congressmen and senators and we got uh, all of our local officials uh, supporting uh, the effort to expand the Sipsi wilderness. So we had some good relationships with some of the politicians. Uh, so they were not all negative. We had uh, Congressman Flippo that was very supportive uh, and gave us a commitment that as long as he was in office he was going to be working to get it done. And so eventually we were able to uh, get a bill through. Uh, it was not what we wanted but it was a compromise situation and we were able to get we were able to be successful and did expand the Sipsi Wilderness in spite of uh, a lot of opposition. Primarily our biggest problem was still how Heflin all the way through. So, uh, but beyond that, uh, we, uh, the Forest Service has a, a process, a land management plan process. And after that we were working on the land management uh, revision and they do a 10, 15, 100 year <clears throat> revisions and try to plan out in advance, which is a great thing. And as part, <clears throat> we went through, uh, of course, the rare two process during the, the Rotos area review and inventory during the Sipsi Wilderness expansion. So we had multiple, multiple, multiple meetings during the course of that to discuss a lot of different things. So we had some input through all of those processes. But uh, beyond that, uh, we continue to uh, be active and try to organize and, and, uh, and associate with other interested parties during the course of uh, all of these environmental efforts. But we were involved in trying to protect the social wilderness. We were also involved in trying to uh, change the uh, overall uh, management uh, direction of the U.S. Forest Service and its emphasis and de and de-emphasize and decrease its uh, emphasis on timber harvesting uh, within the Bank of National Forest and specifically on uh, decreasing clear-cutting uh, because we thought it was extremely disruptive. So during that whole process of this land management revision, we were having multiple uh, meetings with the Forest Service and among ourselves, uh, a few of us. Butch Walker and I have been friends for a number of years, and uh, I think Butch mentioned this uh, guy, uh, Lamar Marshall, that I had not heard of. And I don't recall exactly when we met the first time or talked, but I remember when we, uh, when we did talk uh, early on, uh, I, was, we were, I was already in the process of having some meetings with the Forest Service, as were others on the land management revision. And Lamar was asking me, he said, what's this land management planning stuff all about? And so I went through and explained all of those things, and uh, he was clearly very, you know, very interested. 
in what we were doing, and I didn't know, you know, I had no idea what uh, level of interest he had, but I explained uh, what the process was and what we were trying to do and uh, some of the issues locally that we were trying to deal with, and he was very interested. Lamar got involved and got started, and he was just a dynamo. He was uh, extremely good at uh, organizing and uh, developing uh, coalitions. And he was a, a good communicator. He was good computer skills, so he that helped a whole lot in what he was trying to do. And uh, he came up with the idea of uh, forming the Bankhead Monitor, something to uh, do. We had meetings where we were discussing all these agenda items that uh, were associated with trying to get the Forest Service change the land management plan and uh, denouncing clear-cutting and uh, protesting uh, what they were doing there. And uh, he felt that it would be good to uh, have a little publication. So I think uh, it may have started out as a single-page little flyer at first. And uh, we got uh, lots of fun out of it because we got some good information across but Lamar is also a great artist, and uh, his uh, sense of humor and his uh, artistic drawings were phenomenal. He was uh, had some great pictures in there that uh, drove across uh, very vividly the point of environmental protection uh, and uh, denounced uh, what was being done in some very humorous uh, uh, caricatures of the uh, forest uh, ranger at the time, and uh, and and so we we got a great fun uh, trying to get the message out, and it was serious as well to try to influence public opinion, and so it was very successful. Butch Walker was involved all the time, also from the start. Butch also had grown had grown up, and so he had rambled the bankhead all of his life, and so even though he and I didn't know each other for a long time, we still had had very similar background and experiences with our appreciation of the forest and, and our own personal backgrounds were not all that different. So we uh, continued to uh, expand the, the number of uh, individuals who uh, coalesced around the concept of uh, trying to protect the bankhead. And Lamar continued to uh, network with other groups. And in our early discussion with uh, the congressman and senators, uh, he, the congressman, in fact, uh, encouraged us. Uh, he, uh, in, in our discussions with him and with John Randolph, the attorney from Birmingham with the uh, Alabama Conservancy, uh, who was tasked with uh, overseeing the effort for wilderness expansion on behalf of the Alabama Conservancy. <clears throat> he uh, and I and discussed many times how important it was to have local support because the congressmen deal with local things. And so uh, the more local support you have, uh, the better. And so it was critical to have uh, the local community in support of what we were uh, uh, supporting and uh, asking to be protected. And so uh, I made a special effort and Lamar and others to try to uh, deal with hunters and hikers and fishermen and just people who like to get outdoors and, and observe. Just if they want to just ride the road and look at the scenery and the beauty of you know, the fall colors, that was fine because those are, uh, those are just natural allies of uh, the battle for protection of wild areas. And so uh, Lamar expanded that effort uh, tremendously uh, with a lot of contacts and just uh, his ability to communicate effectively and to form those coalitions. So Lamar will motivate other people to become involved, have their input heard, and uh, make them all feel that uh, they were important and, and a very strong part of the entire effort. Uh, Butch Walker uh, was had a, has always had a special interest in history, as well as uh, the uh, Native American, specifically Native American history, but just history in general of the area. And so he brought a great 
wealth of knowledge uh, to the group and, and to the effort. With his identification of uh, Native American sites, his research on the Hightown Path uh, through the Bank of the National Forest, uh, the historic, prehistoric path, uh, he was uh, able to uh, give uh, additional reasons, in essence, for protection of more specific areas. Sort of culminating meetings at Oakville Indian Mounds at the facility down there. And we had had uh, some of the uh, Forest Service officials from Atlanta. Uh, Dave Holland was one of them, came to the meeting. And they were given uh, enough leeway <clears throat> by the Forest Service to make some uh, guarantees themselves uh, individually as to what the Forest Service would uh, propose and do. And so we had that meeting uh, down there, and as part of that whole process, uh, we got an agreement to protect the uh, area of Indian Tomb Hollow, uh, the boundaries <clears throat> that we recommended, road boundaries, to make it easy. Uh, some, there was some initial discussion about just protecting drainages and watersheds, and they would have had to draw all kinds of boundaries and everything else. And so I said, this is, you know, this is not going to work. I said, you know, we need not only protect just this hollow or this particular drainage, we need to protect the surrounding areas. I was moderating the meeting, so I insisted upon an area large enough to uh, make it easy to protect the integrity of that area. So we got uh, that through and we worked out an agreement with them on uh, establishing, you know, a quarter mile uh, boundary along the Hightown Path, uh, Kenlock Rock Shelter, some of the other areas. So we worked out agreements where we uh, had some expansive boundaries of areas that were supposed to be uh, maintained and not impacted by their activities. And so far, they have done pretty well living up to those. Uh, it's always questioned because uh, those things are not written into law. Forest Service management changes uh, always ha and political influence on them always has the potential to change. Some of the other discussions we had along the way were uh, ecosystem management. And we had meetings with uh, the uh, Alabama Ranger and uh, the head of the U.S. Forest Service in Alabama in the Montgomery office. And one of the things I vividly remember, we have been advocating for ecosystem management and the Forest Service tells us that they're going to do this, that they're going to implement ecosystem management. Well, we'll go to Montgomery and uh, Estelle, uh, I forget what her full name was, was uh, over the U.S. Forest Service out of Atlanta, over the region. And she sends a letter to them, the Alabama office, uh, stating that uh, uh, ecosystem management can be implemented, but there must be no decrease in outputs of goods or services. Uh, so <laughs> she gives them a directive that they cannot decrease the amount of timber coming off the land, but they're going to do ecosystem management. And that was the most intellectually dishonest statement that I have ever seen from a Forest Service official. And so I called that to their attention at the meeting. I said, this is, this is nonsense. And I said, you cannot do ecosystem management if you start out with a presumption in the, the dictation that you cannot decrease goods and services. I said, that totally invalidates everything you do past that. What they were already doing the management that they were already engaged in. So it went from there and uh, the people at the meeting, even the U.S. Forest Service uh, official in Alabama agreed with me. He said, you know, this is obviously a problem. And so anyway, uh, they did negate that. She did rescind her letter. The process changed some so that uh, they could at least justify to some degree the course of action that they were taking after that is more emphasis on ecosystem management. So we've come a long way. Environmental uh, activism is uh, an essential feature of what we, uh, who have any concept of uh, environmental protection, 
we have to be uh, collectively involved as, uh, as good citizens. Understand the significance and importance of uh, the outdoors and wildlife and how much uh, it contributes to the, to the beauty of your life and the quality of your life and how much it contributes to the future generations and how important it is to future generations. And then not only be aware of it, but uh, on a daily basis uh, in your own life and in your uh, political activities, be aware. Be aware of what is happening politically. Be engaged, be involved, participate, make your voice heard, be informed, uh, be rational, be determined, be persistent, and do not be in any way dissuaded, uh, no matter what the cost. It's good to be around people who enjoy those things. Uh, we all have to be uh, involved collectively, unified, continue to do a better job of uh, networking, continue to try to uh, uh, inform and educate uh, the best we can, not only the politicians, but uh, the public generally and one another. Be supportive of uh, other people's actions uh, and encourage them and let them know they're appreciated uh, yeah. and their actions are appreciated and that you support what they're doing. Because it's all uh, just human nature. We uh, all like to uh, know that, uh, that we're not alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes uh, many years when I was uh, writing and advocating in attending meetings, uh, I would be most uh, outspoken and uh, be heap. And Lamar ran through the same thing. We were, <clears throat> you know, there was all kinds of threats being made, of violence, of getting your ass whipped or something or another, and at public meetings and people shouting and everything else. And you just had to, you know, you knew that you were in the right. Uh, you knew that you were the you were speaking the truth, and uh, you had to have the uh, gumption to get up there and speak in front of those people who might try to uh, deride you in some manner, and uh, speak forcefully and let them know that uh, there was a difference of opinion. Uh, you try to do it in a rational, reasonable manner with uh, courtesy to everyone but you had to be absolutely forceful and determined in presenting your point of view. And I think that's what young people have to understand is that do not be discouraged and do not let people intimidate you. Uh, you, know, you know the facts, uh, you make up your own mind, and then you go for it and stick with it. Thanks to cellist Craig Haltgren for our theme music. Thanks to the White Horse Singers for the episode music. Listen next week for episode five. Launches on Monday. You can find more information about the fight for Alabama's last wild places at greenbucketpress.com backslash present dash tense dash podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks for listening.